0: Okay, hello and welcome to the Clipping Chains podcast from clippingchains.com, where we are funding the adventurous life. This is your host, Chad Andrews. And hi, how are you? I want to welcome today Jim Dolly. Jim is the founder of the White Coat Investor a widely consumed personal finance investing blog and podcast specifically designed for physicians and other high-income careers. What Jim created in 2011 as a simple blog has grown into a multimedia empire that now employs 15 people and hosts content from a range of columnists. Jim has cut back from his full-time plus emergency physician career and white coat investor responsibilities to focus on what makes life worth living. And that's where I wanted to pick up in this conversation. Jim is a climber, husband and father of four. Today, we discuss how he's managed to step away at least slightly from his hard charging career and blogging days to what he now is describing as his ideal life. I don't have much in the way of administrative tasks today. I wanna remind you if you haven't already done so that if you could leave a rating or review on Apple or Spotify podcasts, that's super helpful in me landing guests here like Jim. You know, Jim is a, uh, someone who I've followed for a long time. He has a huge sway in the community of finance and personal finance. So, you know, having these reviews helps get people like him on. And so I want to thank Jim for being here. And I want to thank you guys for your support in helping me grow this thing. But that's all I have. So let's get into this conversation with Jim Dolly. Jim, welcome to the show. Appreciate you being here. It's wonderful to be here. So over the years, you've worn many hats. Uh, You've been full-time, probably plus emergency room physician, blogger, podcaster, author, father, husband, probably many others. Let's maybe first begin with how your life has looked this summer, which maybe looked a lot different than it did maybe 10 years ago. And then we can maybe take it back in time from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. My life now does look very different from 10 years ago. Um, You know, in 2015, this idea was presented to me to uh, write down what your ideal life looks like, and then write down what your current life looks like and make it into a Venn diagram, Mm. right? How much overlap is there between your ideal life and your actual life? And in 2015, you know, there was some overlap, but I said, this is a great concept. I'm going to work over the next few years to gradually, you know, get more and more overlap between these two circles. And I think now eight years later, I'm almost completely overlapped. I think I'm basically living my ideal life at this point. It involves work still, uh, but it also involves plenty of time to do non-work stuff. And, And it's a pretty good life, I think. So I'm pretty happy with it.
0: So what were you just doing this last month? Because we had all kinds of scheduling. We we pushed this out like a month because you were so busy being gone other places. What were you up to?
1: You know, it's funny. I am now the at-home guy for for the next few weeks. I dropped my wife off at the airport this morning. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, she is headed to, uh, Tanzania to climb Kilimanjaro and do a safari. So I'm here for the next few weeks and now I can, you know, do things like this interview. Um, but, uh, she's taking two other people that work for our company with her and a couple of other people that work for us are, are heading out today on their way to uh, Norway to do some via ferratas in Norway. So it's my turn to tend the home fires for the next few weeks, and, and that's perfectly fair because I've been spending a lot of time playing lately. Uh, the things that pushed this out, I think uh, August was good. Uh, you know, August is a great month for climbers, particularly those who like going to alpine environments. August is the best month of the year. And of course, you don't want to spend all that time working. You want to spend that time playing. And I guess the three big things I did in August uh, was went down to Zion and uh, and went through Imlay Canyon. And the second thing was a one-day ascent to the Grand Teton with uh, my son and wife. Mm. And then... I went and climbed uh, the regular Northwest Face of Half Dome. So that was the big event, Um, but I had quite an adventure and an epic up there, too.
0: Tell me more about that, I got to ask.
1: Well, uh, (laughs) you know, it's a route I want to do for years. Which route? The the, the regular Northwest Face. Yeah, you know, it's the third easiest route on Half Dome, right? How hard can it be? (laughs) But, uh, you know, I'd been up. I've been up snake Dyke a couple of times, the second easiest route and down the cables route, the first easiest route, both uh-huh. of those times. But I've wanted to climb this route for 30 years mm. and just never felt like I was capable of doing it. Um, you know, whether that was physical fitness wise or whether that was ability, probably more ability, cause I'm not in better shape now than maybe I was years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to the point where I realized that despite my knowledge and maybe skill going up still. My, f- my fitness and physical ability is falling. And at a certain point, if I wait much longer, I'm not going to be able to do this route I've been dreaming about doing f- for my whole life. And uh, so we just set a date. And we actually had to put it off once due to rain. But uh, set a date, and we went and, and did it. But uh, it turned out we were not as fast as we thought we were going to be. <laughs> and after fixing lines the first date, uh, we fixed four pitches. And uh, I don't know if you've been on the regular Northwest Face, but it only, has, it only has one ledge. You know, Big Sandy, which is neither big nor Sandy, <laughs> and it's so 17 heard. pitches up, yeah. right? So you've got to do 17 pitches before you can really sleep. And then there's six pitches on your last day, which are, you know, some of the harder ones, but, uh, but still, it's only six. And so we knew launching off at four o'clock in the morning, jugging lines, uh, that we had to get to Big Sandy before we could sleep well i didn 't put my head uh, down to sleep. I did not go horizontal for twenty four hours oh, goodness. we spent twenty four hours uh, doing those seventeen pitches, last four pitches in the dark and, in the uh,
0: summer too it's hot up there isn
1: 't it in the summer it was, it wasn't we weren't freezing, but yeah. it was, uh, you know it 's something to be two thirds of the way up half Dome in the pitch black. We ran into a tourist a couple of days later walking back down. They're like, was this you up there? And they show us a picture of headlamps way up on on the face of half dome. We're like, that sure was. <laughs> we still had three pitches to go when you took that picture. So
0: Well, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know. I mean, I know of the route, of course, but like what's the shade aspect? I mean, is it mostly in the shade or are you just like sweating it out in full sun on that thing?
1: It it comes into the sun at two o'clock in the afternoon.
0: So you had a pretty good stint in the sun then?
1: Well, yeah, only because we weren't fast. I mean, our goal was to get into the chimney pitches by two o'clock, and we didn't make it. We didn't make it there till six o'clock, so we spent about four hours in the sun
0: So give me some context. How old are you and how old are your son? so i'm forty eight. Okay. My
1: son is fourteen.
0: Oh wow, that's
1: an interesting spread. so he uh, yeah, he's my third, and um, each of my kids we've taken up the grand Teton. Um, our plan is usually to hike up there and spend a few days, you know, climb the south, climb the middle. Um, you know, do a, do a day going up the upper Exum Ridge on the Grand Teton. And, uh, and we've had a different adventure with each of them, but the first one, we ended up, uh, really getting caught in a nasty morning storm, a lightning storm on the Exum Ridge at eight 30 in the morning. And there's a little kind of rock alcove you can crawl into just past the friction pitch, which is like the only protection on the whole route. And we sat in that for about an hour and a half with her. With my second daughter, we decided we were going to carry camp all the way to that coal between the south and the middle. And then we carried our camp over the middle and down the north ridge to the, uh, to the upper saddle there. So that was kind of the adventure she had. And then with him, um, we were going to have snow on the lower saddle the day we were supposed to summit. And so we decided to put it off a few days and just do it in a day. So we did it from the parking lot uh, to parking lot in about 16 hours. And, uh. Had a great trip, Good, great trip with all of them, but it was, you know, a different adventure with each.
0: And my understanding is you also did Gannet Peak in the Wind River Range this summer?
1: That was actually last
0: summer. Was that you, last summer? You, you saw a
1: post on my blog, but it took yes. a long time for that post to actually run. Well, I, that's, wrote it. Okay, that's I wrote it I a confused. year ago, but it just Yeah, came I saw on. the
0: 2023 date on there. Yeah. But, okay.
1: So that was my sister. She, um, she actually runs social media for the White Coat Investor, but she, uh, she's into high points. Mm -hmm. So she drives around and climbs the high points of all these states. Well, she calls me up when she wants to do a technical one. (laughs) And so Gannett Peak is one of the harder ones, one of the more technical ones. So we did that last summer over about three or four days.
0: So what has been your preferred climbing style over the year? Do you like these big uh, Alpine, you know, multi-pitch objectives? Is that kind of your main thing?
1: I think, uh, my preferred route would be an eight pitch five, eight in the mountains. Okay. (laughs) Sounds dreamy. That's, that's probably what, if I could, you know, design something to go do that I'd never done, you know, I don't climb a lot of things twice, but uh, that would be my ideal day. I think. Have you ever been up to Squamish? I have. Uh, in fact, I was so excited when we went to Squamish, I was in residency when we went to Squamish and I was so excited. We went to their ER and asked what would it take to work there? I, mean, oh, really? I, was, I was thinking about living in Squamish. I thought it was paradise. I it, mean, it I really so, is the outdoor recreation capital of Canada.
0: It really is. No, it's a beautiful place. And you talk about like loads of very approachable multi-pitch moderates right next to the road, like really good calm weather. You don't have to worry about these. Cra- I mean, you do get storms there, of course, but you don't have these scary kind of, um, you know, monsoonal rocky mountain storms that just can really scare you and, and are quite right. dangerous, of course.
1: Yeah, I think it rained on us every day we were there, but we still went climbing every day.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's that kind of benign drizzle usually, and it comes yeah. in when it comes in, but you can work around it and it dries fast. And Yeah, I also found that place quite dreamy.
1: Yeah, it's, it's magical for sure.
0: So you have four kids, I believe?
1: Four kids, yeah. yeah. I've got an eight, eight-year-old as well. She's still a few years away from going to climb the Grand with us.
0: Okay, so what about 2015 when you were kind of overlaying this Venn diagram? What was going on in your life at this time? I understand the white coat investor was, was quite large by this point. I'm assuming you had that going on. You're were you still full time as a physician?
1: Yeah, so 2015, I'm about nine years out of residency. I'm about five years out of the military. I've been a partner in my group for about three years. So I'm making good money as an emergency physician. White coat investor has been popular for a while. Um, but it's just starting to make money. You know, mm-hmm. it took me a while to figure out how to make money online, quite honestly. Um, and so in 2015, I'm starting to see, Hey, this thing's actually making some significant income and, you know, there's some possibilities of, of you know, lifestyle changes earlier than I thought I was going to be able to make them. You know, we made mm-hmm. this financial plan back in residency that basically I was going to be able to go part-time in the emergency department by about the time I was 51. Um, was kind of the original plan. But the additional income from the White Coat Investor allowed us to kind of accelerate that quite a bit.
0: Was that your motivation for monetizing the website from the beginning? Was just to fast forward this time to a kind of work optional life, quote unquote?
1: You know, I don't know that I specifically had that end goal in mind. It was definitely a business from day one. I mean, I started the White Coat Investor to make money, right? It had ads on it week one. I wasn't very good at it. You know, year one, I think we had nine hundred dollars in revenue and had that much in expenses. I think year two we made five grand. You know, I mean, this for someone who's, who's you know working in emergency medicine, this is not life changing money, right? Um, but uh, eventually started started making money there. Um, but it was pretty fun in the beginning. You know, my kids would climb up on my knee and, and ask, "How much money did your website make today, Dad?" And I'd be able to tell them a buck twenty seven because somebody clicked <laughs> on an, a Google AdSense right. ad. You know, right. but uh, but it was definitely um, you know, we are trying to make money. I don't know that I specifically had an end goal in mind for it, but certainly a big drive for me to reach financial independence was to drop night shifts.
0: Mm, okay. Yeah.
1: I do not like being awake <laughs> at, at three or four o'clock in the morning. You no, know, even if I'm doing something I love, even if I'm climbing on half dome, I don't want to be awake at three o'clock in the morning. I don't enjoy it. And so that was a big motivation for me to, to, you know, get my financial ducks in a row.
0: I mean, did you feel like you needed to monetize it to make it feel like it Was something real? I mean, because you were making good money as a physician. Why did you want it to be a business? This is something I struggle with. So I'm almost asking on a personal level here. But did it symbolize something as like, oh, this is successful. This is working because there's money coming in associated with it. I don't know how much of
1: it was that. Okay. Uh, is if you, I definitely, I wanted it to make money. I had this idea of passive income I was excited about at the time when I started this thing in 2011. It turned out it's not passive at all, right? No, not at all. It's, it's extremely <laughs> you all. Know, earned income in every way, shape, and form. Um, but, uh, I, I had this idea of passive income that I got excited about and I'm like, well, what else can I do? I think part of it is I've got a little bit of an entrepreneurial bent. Yeah, I can see that. You know, I, uh, you know, in the last few years I've realized this isn't necessarily what I want to do with my life, be an entrepreneur, but I'd like dabbling in it. And so I was dabbling in it. You know, it was just me back then. We got 15 people working for us now, but it was just me back then. And so I did everything, you know, I was the the CEO and I was the chief tech guy and I was the only person creating content and, you know, I was doing everything. And, uh, so that was kind of fun to Google how to do things and, and learn. And, and, and I really enjoyed that process. I think particularly those, those first few years that, uh, that I could, you know, see progress, but did I feel compelled to monetize it? Well, in a couple of ways, one, it, uh, I, I i think it's beneficial to try to monetize something like that because it gives you an additional motivation to stick with it.
0: I agree completely, you
1: know and it's not just because I care about the mission and I did care about the mission. I do care about the mission, which is basically to help docs and other high income professionals get a fair shake on wall street mm-hmm. um, but uh but it's it was nice sometimes when it felt like work to at least know that, okay, I'm also making money doing this. <laughs> right, yeah,
0: <laughs> totally. How have you sustained that? Obviously, you've, you've, you've grown from one to 15 employees. That helps with sustainability. You must have <laughs> an undying um, qu- thirst to quench for financial advice, I guess. But how do you keep doing this now, what, 12 years later? I struggle with this at times. I'm not as much into nuts and bolts as maybe you are. But to, to sustain that focus and to st- sustain that effort on this, it's got to be challenging over all these years.
1: Well, first there's, uh, you know, there is a certain servant mentality, right? I mean, I went into medicine for a reason, right? I like to help people. I really do. You know, you, everybody writes that on their essays when they go to medical school, right? I love science and I want to help people, but I actually mean it. You know, I do enjoy helping people and I enjoy helping my colleagues, docs, you know, and, uh, helping them, you know, discover something that's really helped me a lot in my life, you know? And so there's a little bit of a missionary zeal behind it. But as far as sustaining it, probably the most helpful anecdote I could tell was in 2019 when I was pretty burned out on it. And quite frankly, I was burned out on White Coat Investor. I'm like, I do not want to spend all my time doing this. I come home from a shift and I work for eight more hours, you know, on White Coat Investor, selling ads and, you know, um, doing all this stuff, trying to put together partnerships and agreements and create content. And uh, so my wife and I, that fall, we talked and we're like, this has either got to get bigger, meaning we hire a bunch more people, or it's got to get smaller and we do less. At that point, we had three part-timers helping us. Two of them were related to me. You know, two of them were my sisters. One was a neighbor, you know, and that was the crew in 2019, right? And, And yes, it's making good money, but it's eating our lives, you know, my wife's and mine. And so we decided, well, let's go bigger. And so we got serious. You know, we started hiring people that for whom what they're doing is a career. You know, they've already got experience in doing it when they came to work for us. They want to work full time. They've got experience that's valuable and they're expensive employees. Right. Um, but we kind of changed and started hiring those folks. And actually, the first one we hired is our current COO. And uh, it was his job to hire the rest.
0: <laughs> oh, nice. Very so. very well done. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how did how did that work for you? I mean, over the years, pulling yourself away from this as being 100% you, good or bad, it's all you, to now sharing that responsibility with others. Did that feel natural and easy to do, or was that a little bit hard to let go of those reins?
1: It is a little bit hard. I think it's easier for me than other people. Uh, I'm not terrible at delegating things. Mostly I'm lazy, though. <laughs> you know, I don't want to do it. So I'm like, well, if I don't want to do it, someone else has got to do it. And I, well, I can give them some direction. And when something's really going wrong... Um, you know, I got to step in, but for the most part, if you hire good people, you keep them, you empower them, you will find most of the time they're doing a better job with it than you would, you know, and that's mostly what I found when I give people that autonomy support, but autonomy, um, they, uh, they will, they'll do a better job than I ever would. And, um, so I think that's hiring is the hardest part of running a business for sure. Hiring and firing people and managing people. But, um, you know, you get the right people in there and, and they can do a whole lot more than you ever could.
0: I guess at what point did you decide to walk away or not walk away, but become more part time with your medicine career? Because you talk about wanting to serve and that's obviously important to you. And I imagine you feel that still with running White Coat Investor because you're, you're now paying people livable wages and things like this. They're actually career jobs. But how is that calculus of weighing, well, I serve in the emergency room. That feels very purposeful and meaningful, but now I'm going to step back away from that. At what point did you make that decision and how did that feel?
1: Well, I was kind of forced out of medicine in a way.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. In that I
1: I just couldn't do it all. I couldn't have two full-time jobs. Yes. I'm like, I cannot do this. Yes. And so I had to cut back. And so my first step was I think in 2016 or so, uh, that was about when I dropped the night shifts. And right around that same time, within a year or so, I cut back from full-time to three-quarter time. And a full-time emergency physician works 15 shifts every month. You know, whether it's Christmas, whether it's Thanksgiving, whatever, holidays, you know, weekends, nights, whatever, it works out to be about 15 shifts a month is what you do. Um, You know, 12-12s or 15-8s, that's basically a full-time schedule. And so when I went to, you know, three-quarter time, I think I went down to 12 shifts or something. I guess that's 0.8 full-time equivalents. Um, and, uh, and I was like, wow, this is great. You know, between the change of not having those night shifts and just having a few more days a month, it was just a dramatic relief. I was able to put a lot more focus and time, not only on, um, you know, white coat investor, but also just with my family, with my health, et cetera. And, um, so that was a big change. Uh, A couple of years after that, I went to halftime right now. I'm at about 0.4 FTEs. That works out to be about six shifts. I only work day shifts now. I no longer even work the evening shifts. So um, six day shifts feels very sustainable to me. Um, you know, that leaves me essentially 24 other days a month unencumbered. Um, where I can either work on White Coat Investor kind of stuff, which I do. I use a lot of the days for that. Um, you know, a lot of half days I work for White Coat Investor. Um, but it also leaves me the flexibility to go do a lot of other really cool stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Like Hafto. Like him. Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, like my partner. My partner's an emergency physician. He works full time, right? I'm talking about, you know, my climbing partner. Mm, okay. and, um, and he was able to go do Hafto with me, right? But he couldn't do the other stuff I did in August, too. You know, he didn't have time to go to Zion. He didn't have time to go to the Tetons, you know, but where I do now. And so I, I really enjoy that aspect of it.
0: Now, how long did you have to practice before you felt like you had the career capital, whatever you want to call it, to be able to work part-time? Is that something like, let's just say someone who's got a great salary and not a ton of debt can save up and become financially independent in say five years. Is that enough time in that industry to be able to go part-time or do you really need to kind of build up a few more years practicing?
1: You know, what I tell docs is don't go part-time in your first couple of years. Yeah. (laughs) You really need to be full-time, not for financial reasons. Sure. Because a a lot of people, by the time they come out of residency, they're 30, 33, 35, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of moms are like, I want to go on the mommy track for a couple of years. You know, I want to have a couple of kids before I'm too old to have them and then be part-time until they're, you know, in school. And what I counsel people to do is I'm like, you got to do a couple of years. You got to do a couple of years and kind of solidify your clinical skills and your reputation. And then you can go part-time, you know, uh, obviously for other people, it's just financially, they can't make it work to go part-time initially. They owe $300,000 in student loans or, you know, they have nothing saved for retirement. They're already 35, you know, it it just doesn't work for them to go part-time unless they have a, a relatively, uh, you know, a spouse making a decent income. But, um, you know, I'd say a couple of years is plenty. Hmm. You know, at that point, I I would feel comfortable with a doc that was working part time that had been full time for a few years and in the beginning of their career. You know, you you don't want a doc that's you know not practicing enough to stay current and to be up on their skills and their procedures and those sorts of things. Um, But you don't have to work full time to do that.
0: Now, is that fairly universal across medicine? Because I didn't feel like I had you know I was a geologist, oil and gas geologist, and. It was kind of full-time or nothing. At least that was my perception.
1: Yeah, that's the way it is in a lot of jobs. And I think it's a lot harder in some specialties than others. For example, I think it would be tough, especially if you own your own practice. If you own your own general surgery practice, it's pretty hard to be part-time. What are you going to tell all your clinic staff, <laughs> right? You're all going to be part-time. You're going to work the hours I work, right? Yeah. You got to work your way into a situation like that, uh, But for a shift worker, you know, an emergency physician, a hospitalist, a radiologist, an anesthesiologist, those sorts of workers, you know, it's not that hard to work part-time. My group is particularly good in this regard. We have a requirement you got to work between six and 18 shifts. We don't let anybody work more than 18 because we feel like they get kind of burned out and Mm -hmm. treat the patients bad. We don't let anybody work fewer than six because we feel like if they're not working six, they're not working enough to stay current and be good docs. And so the general trend is people come out of residency, they're working 15, 16, 17 shifts, they're paying off student loans, they're paying off mortgages, you know, they're saving up for retirement, those sorts of things. And then they gradually cut back. You know, at 40, maybe they go to 12. At 50, maybe they go to 10. You know, at 60, they're working six day shifts, you know. Um, And and so it's been a really great group in that respect. And uh, I think it's important to to seek out those opportunities, be in those sorts of groups where people care about the longevity of your career. So you don't have to quit because you're burned out at 42, you know. Um, but uh, can, you, can you create that in every specialty? Probably. You know, it might involve doing locums work, you know, where you go work one place and cover for a doc on maternity leave or going on vacation or something for a month. And then you take two months off. Then you go work a month somewhere else and you take three months off. You know, that might be the way it looks for some specialties. Uh, but I think it's possible to be part-time in, uh, in just about any field in medicine. Uh, and I suspect in lots of careers where you might guess it's not possible, it, it may be more possible than you think.
0: Yeah, I've kind of wondered that over the years. I mean, I left because my company got bought out and I was financially there. And I'm like, you know what? This is good. We'll just step away at this point. <laughs> but, you know, I think I would have... I was just talking about this yesterday. I think I would have approached my employer about something, even though it didn't it didn't seem to me possible. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're decent at what you do and you've been around long enough and they know you, maybe just maybe there's some possibilities. You know, you know the medical world. I don't know that world at all, but I'm just talking for others outside of that that kind of sphere um, beyond medicine. There's pro- there probably is some other ways.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think being creative and talking to your employer and because most of them would rather keep you in some. Manner than lose you completely. Yeah, exactly.
0: So in 2019, you were really burnt out with White Coat Investor. Now, I understand you received quite a great offer to sell the whole platform at some point, multi million dollar deal. What year was that?
1: You know, we've had several offers over the years. Uh, I think they'd all qualify as a multi million offer. Maybe the first one, maybe the first one we got wasn't. I can't remember. Um, But, you know, there's always that conversation, right? Uh, What do you want to do with your life? Yeah. I mean, we've probably been financially independent since 2018. So I don't have to work for money. Um, now, more income does allow us to do some other things, you know, uh, not only additional spending, but additional giving, additional investing, and additional legacy planning, that sort of thing. Create more jobs for other people. You know, we've started a bunch of scholarship funds and those sorts of things. So that's kind of fun. But as far as working to put food on the table and a roof over the head and clothes on my kid's back, you know, we haven't needed to do that since 2018. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that gives you a lot of options in life to really start thinking about what you want to do with your life. And for me, this is part of what I want to do right now. Right. I I said, I'm living pretty darn close to my ideal life. Now that means I go on a trip or two every month. You know, even this month when my wife's going to Kilimanjaro for almost three weeks, uh, I spent five days at Lake Powell with the kids and uh, some extended family, just kind of a houseboat boating trip. And at the end of the month, I'm spending six days canyoneering. So even in in a month where you think I wouldn't be traveling much, I'm still going on a couple of trips. So work isn't keeping me from doing what I want to do. Agreed. And so why not keep doing it if it's enjoyable and you're doing some good in the world?
0: What do you tell people who ask you about the idea of just retiring early? Like say, you know, quite young, maybe let's just say less than 50, but probably less than 45 years old.
1: Well, there's a, there's a lot of people that uh, are feel like, oh, what would I do if I didn't work? I'd be bored. That's not a problem for me, right? I've got plenty of hobbies. I got plenty of activities. I am not going to be bored if I quit working. What I would feel, though, is a little bit purposeless. Yeah. I would feel like I wasn't making a contribution. I would feel like I wasn't making the world a better place. And so far, I haven't found volunteer opportunities that, that make me feel that way, the same way as as paid work and running my own business does.
0: I agree. That's you know, I've talked about this with others. I think I had Chris Mamula on here. We talked about volunteer work is obviously useful, it's important, it's needed, but you don't always get the coolest assignments when you don't work for money. They give you the kind of things that, that that other people won't do that, you know, that are paid to do it. And so it's not always the most rewarding work. I've had the same experience looking around for volunteer opportunities. So I I relate to that. Yeah. But, I, but I, I think
1: if people are like, I wouldn't know what to do. You need more hobbies, you know, yeah. start exploring yeah. those. I've got plenty to do. There, that's no problem. I mean, even if it's just going on a couple of trips a month and playing video games the rest of the time, <laughs> I can fill my time. That is not a problem.
0: Yeah. Try climbing. It'll eat up your whole life. So Yeah, exactly. Speaking of climbing, how in the, in the, in the years where you were, you know, working full time and you were managing this, this platform, how did you balance things like climbing with work? And you had a, a, kids as well.
1: I climbed less. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Here's the deal with climbing, right? Yeah. Uh, climbing a wonderful thing.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you kind of get two choices. You can be a dirt bag in your twenties. You can live the dream. And we've all used these phrases, right? We look at these guys living in their van in Yosemite and climbing every day and they're living the dream. And, and then when the weather gets bad, they go to the desert and, you know, and we look at it and we're jealous. You can do that in your twenties, maybe your thirties. And then life kind of hits and you don't have any money and you're, you know, you're still living hand to mouth. If that, maybe you've run up a bunch of debt, who knows? Um, You don't really have any career prospects. You don't have any really good method of making money and you kind of struggle. And this isn't just in climbing, you know, there's rafting guides and things like that. Uh, People who've been living this dream in their twenties and thirties. The other alternative is you go to college, you bust your butt and maybe you become a professional, you know, attorney or geologist or a doctor or whatever. You bust your butt and you realize, I don't want to do this for the next 40 years. So I'm going to save a whole bunch of my income. And you get into a position where you can at least go part time by your forties, if not completely punch out. And you can still climb in your forties. You're not quite as strong as you were in your twenties, but, uh, you know, my climbing trips look a little bit different. If we want to stay in a nice hotel, we stay in a nice hotel. Totally. If I want uh, new cams, I go buy new cams. If I got a fuzzy rope, you know, I don't need that anymore. (laughs) Right. It's a different place. And, uh, and, and it's nice too. It's just another way to do it. And, um, you know, and I've been jealous of dirt bags in the past and me too. And now in my 40s, I'm like, you know, this is, this is a pretty nice place to be too.
0: Yeah, there's no right answer. I agree. It's a trade-off. Obviously, there's something alluring about your physical capabilities in your youth. And you obviously have that drive to be, yeah, dirty and unwashed and, uh, you know, not have any money. But there is a trade-off later in life. And <laughs> I would take this one. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Yep. Yeah. And speaking of that, I had a listener question from Dave. He's actually a fan of your show. And, and I hit him up. He was on my podcast recently. Um, he, he said many climbers have more time and less money when they're early in their careers. And he's just coming out of residency himself. He says, any advice on balancing spending for memorable trips versus saving for the future?
1: Oh, I think the best advice I can give, and I can't remember who I got it from. It might be Arthur Brooks who, or, uh, um, yeah, it might be Arthur C. Brooks, mm-hmm. who was a yep. columnist with the New York Times. I'm not sure. It could have been somewhere else, but let's give him the credit. He certainly talked about Ideas like this, if not this one specifically, but the idea is that there's chapters in your life, and if you don't do what belongs in a certain phase or a certain chapter of your life, you're not going to get to do it. Maybe this phase is when your kids are young. If you don't put them in bed and read books to them, guess what? When they're fourteen, they don't want you to read books and, and tuck them in bed. <laughs> You've missed it. It's gone, right? And um, and so there's chapters in your life. If you want to go climb big walls you're probably not going to go do that in your seventies, you know, probably not even your sixties. It's getting tough by your fifties, yeah. you know? And, um, so if you put that off too long, you're not going to get to do it. Um, you know, some people will climb Everest in their fifties, but, uh, you know, very few in their sixties, if that sort of high altitude, extreme mountaineering calls to you, you know, you're going to have to find time during your career. And, um, you know, same thing if you just want to be a competitive, you know, plastic climber or a sport climber, or boulder or whatever, you know what, you're not going to be as good at 45 as you could have been at 32. Yeah. And so you've got to find that balance. Uh, I can tell you sitting on this end of the wealth accumulation curve, looking back going, I got plenty of money now. Um, and I can't use it to buy any more time, right? I can't use it to go back to 32. I mean, ask yourself, right. If you could trade places with Warren Buffett, would you do it? And almost nobody will, Yeah. right? Because how much time's Warren Buffett got left on, on this planet? Not that much. And, uh, and at a certain point, time's worth more than money. So you definitely have to keep some balance, but I tell young docs, you know, the most important financial year of your life is that first year out of residency, you know, and what you do with your money then is gonna tell you what you're gonna be doing the rest of your career with your money. And so I advise them to kind of live like a resident, keep their spending like the average American yes. for two to five years after they come out of residency. So they're earning like a doc and living like an average Joe. And you can do a lot of magical things with the difference in the income between a doc and an average Joe to to really set yourself up financially. So I, I think you do need to to really be pretty um you know, working pretty hard and financially savvy those first few years out of residency, but you can't put everything off, you know, or you're going to end up, you know, being 60 and not being able to go do those dream things that you wanted to do, or, or who knows, you know, you might have cancer at 60. Some people don't make it to 60. So you, you got to have some balance in your life too.
0: Well, how do you think looking back, you clearly made a lot of great financial decisions. You were very intentional early in your career with financial decisions. And you talked to people who are probably of a similar personality, similar mindset, now, because I talk to climbers, I get a lot of pushback <laughs> when I write articles about, you know, don't put off a career, you know, don't go travel. A lot of people, you know, get a little triggered by that. So do you, do you think looking back, should you maybe have lived a little bit more and been a little less career focused? Or do you think you had that balance right in the early days?
1: I don't know. You know, you only get one shot. I
0: know. I know. Now,
1: there, there's a climber, a friend of mine, um, a fellow by the name of Stacey Taniguchi. I uh, used to guide on Denali when I was a kid. He was actually one of my high school teachers and kind of a mentor for me when I was a teenager. But, um, you know, if you ask him, you know, he did a whole bunch of different things in his life, but he has this idea, uh, that you want to thrive in your life, not just survive. And, uh, so he encourages you to make a list, you know, of the things you want to accomplish in your life. But the idea behind the list, this thrive list is you should be willing to live the life you've lived. Over and over and over again. If you got a whole other life, how would you live it? Ideally, the exact same way you're living this one. And so I, I'm trying to do that. Do, there are little times when I'm like, eh, I probably should have spent more money there. Eh, maybe I shouldn't have worked as hard there. Yeah, there's a few of those. Yeah. Absolutely, there's a few of those. But for the most part, I think I got it right. Yeah. And I'd live this life again. I loved medical school. Medical school is great. Yes, I studied hard. But two or three afternoons a week, I was up in the Wasatch climbing too, you know? Yes. When we'd go down to Red Rock, we were sleeping in a ditch because we were broke, (laughs) you know, and uh, waking up before dawn to go climb Crimson Chrysalis or Chrysalis, however you say it. Chrysalis, yeah. I mean, uh, did I do that stuff? Yes. Could I have done it more if I wasn't in residency and, and hitting it hard in medical school? Yes, I could have done it more. Do I regret it? No, I think I got it more or less about right for me. But for other people, maybe there's a period of time of five or six or seven years where you go live the dirtbag lifestyle and then you work on your career. You know, medicine's a little different from most careers. You lock yourself in into this pipeline that's 10 or 15 years long. For sure. 20s and half your 30s. And uh, most careers aren't like that, right? You want to go be a geologist. It doesn't take 15 years to become a geologist, you know. And if you put it off for five or six years, that's probably okay. Okay. You know, if that's the way you want to live your life, I don't know that I'd put it off for 20 though.
0: Yeah. that That's kind of where I, I don't know if I call anything, I say advice, but I'll tell people, Hey, you know, you can take some time, but don't take too much time. Cause then you got some explaining to do. Maybe that's getting more and more accepted <laughs> these days, but um, yeah, historically it's been tough to explain too much time away, but maybe, maybe people are okay with that these days. I so don't know.
1: what did you spend these six years doing? Well, <laughs> I was living in camp four
0: and yeah, exactly. Yeah. But dirt bagging also doesn't look like what it used to look like either. Like you said, now there's fancy vans and far more yeah. comfort involved, and which means you got to spend money to get it. So,
1: right, yeah, right. Those so. vans aren't cheap. <laughs> it's unbelievable what people spend on their vans. Yeah, it is unbelievable.
0: Do you ever uh, get excited about the van idea with the kids? Well, I don't know. With four kids and a wife, it might be a little tight.
1: Yeah, I, I, we've never done a van. Okay. Um, you know, we've got big, big, big SUVs, and I've got a, I've got a boat, you know, both a raft and a and a you know wake boat. Uh, we do a lot of camping out of that at Lake Powell. Uh-huh. Um, But, uh, you know, the problem is everything you own with a motor requires a certain amount of your time, right? Everything you, er, everything you own owns a little piece of you, not only (laughs) your past because you had to work to pay for that, but your future, because you got to maintain it and store it and insure it and those kinds of things.
0: Absolutely.
1: So, you know, I try not to have too much of that kind of stuff. You know, I've looked at second homes and that sort of stuff, but every time I go visit someone at their second home, they're out mowing the lawn. I'm on vacation, they're mowing the lawn (laughs) and I'm like, I don't think that's right. So. So I haven't <laughs> bought a second home either for the same reason.
0: Well, that actually reminds me, let's talk a little bit about real estate because a lot of people are very dogmatic in their preferred style of investing, but you kind of like to at least to some degree kind of straddle both uh, stock market investing and real estate. What are your thoughts on why you've ad- advocated for that?
1: I think people are dumb. that get dogmatic about it, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. You're
1: just being dumb. Okay. So the, the stock people you know, and hopefully they're index fund investors, yeah. but they're like, oh, real estate's a second job. Well, there's lots of ways to invest in real estate where it's really not much of a second job. You know, whether those are syndications or whether they're funds or, you know, a, a REIT, whether it's publicly traded or private, you know, there's lots of ways to invest. Um, you know, even if you own the property directly, you can hire management and, and all this stuff you can hire out and put systems in place. So it's not always... That much of a second job. Uh, if you talk to the real estate people, they would think you're going into a casino when you go buy an S and P 500 index fund. It's like, uh, come on, this isn't a paper asset, right? I am owning a piece of the you know thousands of most successful companies corporations in the history of the world. And I get a share in their profits. You know, when Apple <laughs> makes money, I make money. When Exxon makes money, I make money. When Walmart makes money, I make money. Right. Petzl, whoever. Right. Yep. And, um, and so I, I think there's a lot to learn from each other, you know, and I think both of them make mistakes, you know, uh, some of the, some of the index fund folks or don't realize that guess what you can add to your return by doing things to your property. You know, Mm -hmm. add a bedroom to the property and you've just injected a lot of value into your investment. Try injecting value into your, into your index fund. You can't do it, you know? Um, and, and likewise the, uh, all all these real estate folks are like, oh, don't max out your 401k and that money's locked up and you can't, you, well, you just passed up on some of the biggest tax breaks. Uncle Sam will give you, you know, these Roth IRAs and these 401ks and that's pretty foolish too. Not to mention the ease of investing in the stock market properly, you know, going and buying a handful of reasonably diversified and low cost index funds. I mean, this takes 30 seconds. Yes, I mean, it, investing doesn't get any easier than it is these days. It's practically free and takes a minute of your time a month. I mean, what do you want? It's... <laughs> It's as easy as it gets. Why wouldn't you at least do that with some of your money? So, yeah, yeah. You
0: know,
1: I tell the real estate folks, even if you're totally into real estate, you ought to put 20% of your money into stocks.
0: And you're kind of the opposite, is my understanding, right? You're more I'm about like, the opposite. Yeah. I'm yeah. a
1: 60% stocks, 20% bonds, 20% real estate. That's our portfolio. And it's been that way for a long
0: time. Mm-hmm. Now, do you include your own personal house in that real estate bucket or is that completely separate?
1: No, I look at that as a consumption item.
0: Okay. Yeah. Good.
1: You know, yes, it'll have value when it gets sold, and I'm sure my kids will appreciate that. But you know, I I pay money for this thing every month. I got to insure it. I got to maintain it. We we went away on this trip this weekend, and a bunch of water dripped out of the ice maker, and I got five thousand dollars worth of damage down there. Oh boy! You know, it's that welcome to homeownership, <laughs> yeah, right? Totally. It is not an investment. Yes, it pays a dividend of saved rent, right? And it does go up in value over time, but mm-hmm. it's mostly a consumption item.
0: Yeah, I'm in. I'm in agreement. Now, do you actively rent out to tenants? I know you've done that in the past, but I don't think you do now. Is that correct?
1: No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) i got enough jobs. Yeah. If I want to put more time into a job, I put it into the White Coat Investor. It'll probably pay me a lot better dividends, uh, given the success of the business at this point, number one. And number two, it turns out I don't actually like landlording. I don't find it very fun. Um you know, whether it's just talking to tenants, I don't really like doing that much. I certainly don't like maintaining homes. um, And uh, I don't even really like going out and looking for deals. So there's not much about it that i like. I would much rather pay somebody else to do it. I think it's a great asset class to invest in, but I mostly invest in real estate via private real estate funds.
0: Yeah, that's my understanding. Okay. So anyone who's interested in the real estate, this would include me, you know, we've gone and rented out our own former home and we're now renting for various reasons so we moved so we are kind of sort of real estate investors but i'm kind of with you in that it's still a glorified consumption item. Yeah. Now, how has your enthusiasm waned in light of the kind of recent pressures on the housing market? You know, a lot has changed in the last few years. It used to be super low interest rates, reasonable prices, but now all that's flipped uh, there's even news about home insurers dropping or eliminating coverage in like the entire state of California and other high-risk areas. <laughs> yeah,
1: Florida's looking bad too. Yeah,
0: exactly. So, how do you think about that? In in the last three to five years, it seems like a lot has changed.
1: Well, the tide went out. You know, this is the analogy Warren Buffett likes to use. The tide went out and it turned out a bunch of people were swimming without any uh, swim trunks on. You know, and um, and I've had some private real estate investments where it turned out they thought interest rates would never go up. You know, it was the planning they were making, and they're really scrambling to recover value for themselves and their investors now. Um, you know, and, and this is something that could happen. I think it surprised a lot of people just how quickly interest rates went up. You yeah. know, four percent in less than a year. Um, I think that surprised a lot of people. Um, so obviously, that hurt the value of bonds. It uh, definitely, you know, put some pressure on stocks. It, it's hurt the value of real estate properties. You know, and you could finance it at 3%, you're willing to pay more for it than you are when you can only finance it at 7%. But the truth is, all of those are better investments today than they were before they dropped in value. Mm. You know, the yields on stocks are higher, the yields on bonds are higher, um, the uh, cap rates on on properties are higher, you know, as long as you weren't funding all this with a ridiculous amount of leverage that you couldn't service, Right. you have better investments today than you did, you know? Um, and so I, I, we all get excited about buying the value of, uh, of an investment after it goes up in value, but that's not the way we buy anything else in our life. We'd much rather buy a boat or buy a hamburger after it's you know, <laughs> being sold at a discount, but we don't feel that way about investment properties or about stocks or bonds, but we should. Um, so it, it's really this interesting dichotomy. You can either have a whole bunch of assets with poor Future expected returns, or you can have less in assets and better future expected returns. Now, obviously, if you're 76, you'd rather have all the assets. If you're 26, you'd rather have the higher future expected returns. And the rest of us are somewhere in between. You know, I'm about halfway in between. So I'm kind of either or, you know, whichever is fine with me.
0: Now, looking back early in your career, I get this question a lot from young people, early career. Maybe they're not early career, but they just don't have a ton of money and they're looking to purchase their first house. And now they're super bummed at the current market, you know, mortgage rates approaching 8%. Where would you be on home ownership if you were starting your career now? <laughs> uh, this is a hilarious
1: question to me, right? Because my first mortgage was 8%. Okay, there we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I bought I bought a condo in 1999. Our mortgage was 8%. We refinanced a couple of times. I think when we moved out a few years later, it was like 725 Yeah. And everyone's like, mortgages are at 7%. I'm like, mortgages are supposed to be at 7%. You know, they're not supposed to be 2% or 3%, you know, that was a very limited uh period of time. And I wouldn't expect that to come back anytime soon. Um,
0: Which is uh, a big contributor to these price run-ups.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, would you rather have a 7% mortgage and, and pay a lower price on the house? Or would you rather pay more for the house and have a 2% mortgage? Those are really the questions to ask. The bigger problem other than interest rates um, a bigger problem than the interest rates is the fact that they didn't build enough houses. Yeah. So it's, you know, from 2008 on, you know, people just haven't been building as many houses as we really need it for population growth, et cetera. And so that's what's keeping home prices up more than the fact that interest rates were low because you see interest rates went up and yes, that home prices dropped a little bit, but they're going back up again because there's not enough houses. And um so uh, here's here's my advice on home buying. When your personal life and your professional life are stable, meaning neither one is likely to change in the next 5 years, you probably want to buy a house. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you're in an area of the country and in, you know, have an income such that that's a possibility for you. And there are areas of the country and there are professions, you know, uh, jobs, income levels, families, et etc., where it doesn't make sense. They can't buy. Because the only thing they could buy would be terrible to live in. And so they're stuck renting or they have to move somewhere else or they have to do something about their income. Um, but most of the people that I'm writing for and talking to in my podcast are high-income professionals. Most of them can buy in just about any part of the country. They might have sure. to dial back what they can buy. But they can buy something. And uh, if they're in a stable situation, I'm a big fan of ownership. I think people should buy houses, but I don't think you should buy a house when you're only going to be there for two years. It's not going to appreciate enough to overcome the transaction costs.
0: I'm with you. Okay. We're in agreement. Yeah. That's kind of where I've landed. It's like, ah, it stings a little bit more, but it probably will still work out if you're going to be somewhere for a while.
1: Yeah. I mean, time heals all wounds in real estate, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Give it time. It'll appreciate and eventually you'll come out ahead.
0: What else do you think has changed? You know, we, again, getting back to this interest rate phenomenon, it wasn't just stocks, or it wasn't just real estate. Do you, does it concern you that interest rates have, I mean, I'm in the camp that said they were too low for too long. You're probably in that same camp. Um, has it concerned you that the world wasn't ready for these changes that we've seen in the last year or so?
1: Well, I'm super excited, right? To be able to make money on my cash again. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's true. right. I'm, yeah, that's a, I'm a net saver. Yeah. I, I don't have any debt. Um, you know, low interest rates are great when you're borrowing money. I don't have any debt though. I want to actually make something on my investments, on my cash. Everything I've got now has a higher expected return. Yeah. You know, you put your money in the Vanguard federal money market fund. Uh, I checked it yesterday. It was paying 5.27%. It has never paid 5.27% since I started investing in 2003. This is the highest it has ever paid. You know, and my bond yields are up and my stock yields are up. And you know, I, I, it's great. For an investor, Mm -hmm. um, even your bonds, people are like, oh, bond values went down when interest rates went up. Well, as long as you're holding them for longer than the duration of the bond fund, you know, you're going to come out ahead with higher interest rates. This is good for you to have interest rates go up if you're a Mm long-term investor. Um, You know, there's other things that, that aren't so good about higher interest rates. You know, uh, I mean, part of our business is we refer people to some refinancing companies and guess what? Nobody wants to refinance their student loans when they only <laughs> refinance them to 7%, you know? So I'm probably coming out behind if I look at my entire financial life because of, because of these increase in interest rates. But uh, here's the deal, right? As bad as high interest rates are, high inflation is worse. You do not want to be in a high inflation environment. I think if ours peaked at 9%, if you, as measured by CPI, you, um, that is not a place you want to be very long. That is a terrible, terrible uh, economic environment to be living in where everything you own drops in value 9% a year. Uh, it's just not good um, and so if what it took to rein that in was pulling in some of the helicopter money they've been dropping off since 2008 and to raise interest <laughs> rates well that's what it takes and we got to go through that pain because we do not want high inflation um, so far so good yeah you know I'm you. pretty darn happy with what the fed's been doing in that regard um, you know they brought you know, inflation down, at least on average, obviously everyone's inflation is individual to what they buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far haven't killed the economy doing it. Yeah, so I think they've I'm, I'm so please <laughs> so far, um, yes, it hurts some of the things I own, but you know, so far so good. And uh, worst case scenario, they overshoot a little bit. Well, they're going to have to start cutting interest rates and everyone will get all excited again.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to move back to White Coat Investor real quick and kind of examine a little bit more of how, again, how you've separated yourself from that and brought in others. What does your kind of maybe day-to-day or week-to-week or month-to-month look like with that project? How much of it do you have your hands on and how much of it is just taken away by others to do what they do best?
1: Well, I mean, part of the job I hired the COO to do mm-hmm. um, this is a fellow called Brett and he's fantastic. He's absolutely wonderful hire, wonderful person, wonderful friend. But part of what he views as his job is to have me only be doing what I want to be doing in the business. And for the most part, you know, it took a few years, but for the most part, that's all I'm doing. And so I am basically creating content Mm -hmm. and uh, answering people's questions for the most part. Yeah. I go to some meetings. I give some high level direction. You know, I do a few speaking gigs a year, those sorts of things. Um, but for the most part, I am primarily creating content. Now, what does that mean? That means I got to record eight podcasts a month, nine wow. podcasts a month. That's a lot. It means I'm probably writing eight blog posts a month or so, eight or nine blog posts. Um, I'm giving some editorial direction on, uh, on a lot of other you know, blog posts and that sort of thing. I write uh, a good chunk of our monthly newsletter that we send out. Um, and then maybe I record one other thing. You know, maybe it's a webinar or something with one of our sponsors, that sort of thing. That's probably a typical month's workload for me uh, as far as a white coat investor goes. And then I'll go to four or five meetings. Um, and that's a typical month for me. Now that's spread out such that there's no typical day. You know, my typical day, if I'm at home and I don't have a shift in the ER, my typical day is I wake up, we read some scriptures with the kids. They go off to school. I work out for an hour or two. Um, I do some white coat investor work for four or five hours. Um, maybe I go play a video game for an hour or two and, uh, then the kids are coming home and we're into kid activities, uh, in the evenings, um, and our own personal activities. My wife plays on a soccer team. I play on a couple of hockey teams. I coach my son's hockey team. Um, my daughter plays basketball. My other daughter's doing gymnastics and soccer. And, and so we're doing their activities, uh, you know, throughout the evening. Um, then it's bedtime, you know, and that's kind of a typical day when I'm at home. But, uh, I also have days where I go to the ER uh, from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. Um, and then, of course, lots of days where one or both of us are traveling.
0: So you are not bored? Not bored at all, yeah. <laughs> I'm not having any trouble filling my time at all. I mean, yeah, you sound like you're pretty close to full-time working when you average it all out, right?
1: Yeah, I think if I had to add it up, I'd say I'm probably at about 0. 0.8 full-time yeah. equivalents. Okay. You know, I mean, I've got the process pretty streamlined for writing blog posts and, you know, podcasting. I've been doing it for a while. I'm I like to think I'm halfway decent at it, and um, it doesn't take me as long as it does a lot of other people to do those sorts of things. When I, when I say do a podcast, I spend an hour recording an hour podcast, and then I hand it off to the podcast producer, and we have an AV person and a transcriptionist and those sorts of things. So I really only spend an hour on an hour podcast.
0: Yeah, because the editing, man, I mean, because <laughs> I'm doing it at yeah. all, and so it's… Yeah. It's like,
1: you, you spend three or four times compared exactly. to the amount of time you spent behind the microphone. That's
0: kind of what I have realized. It's about three to four X. People don't realize how much time it takes to edit these things.
1: See, this is one of the beautiful things about making money. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> if, you're making money, yeah. if you're making money, you can pay somebody to do that stuff. And then you can just spend your time doing what you enjoy.
0: Now, did you make the money and then decide we've got money to hire people? Or did you like, I'm going to take a chance on hopeful growth? Where were you when you started making those decisions?
1: I made the money first. Okay, yeah. So Because I, I was scared.
0: Yeah. No, I'm with you. This
1: has been bootstrapped the whole time. Yeah. We've never had debt as a company. Don't plan to. If we're not making the money, we don't make the investment. Um, but it's always scary to make that investment because when you say, I'm going to hire this person, if they are not creating as much value as you're paying them um, or more, then you're losing money on them. You could have just had the cash, you know? And so it's always... a. It's always an investment. It's always a little bit scary. You know, we just made a decision to hire somebody else yesterday and, uh, it's always scary to say that's money. I'm not going to take home. That's money I'm going to pay to somebody else. And hopefully it pays off. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, with these sorts of investments, whether it's a person or whether it's a marketing campaign, you know, sometimes you threw something at the wall and
0: nothing stuck. Yeah. Well, hopefully that'll be helpful for anyone that's an entrepreneur. Cause yeah, you have been quite successful with that. And so, yeah, it's inspiring. It really is. I mean, you're, you're hustling harder than me still. And uh, maybe I just need to try harder. So. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I'm sorry to give you that impression. We should go climbing instead.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm doing too much of that these days. So, and, mm-hmm. and some other projects that aren't associated with this. But yeah, I stay busy too, so I relate. Um, anything else about climbing you want to talk about? I know we haven't made it fully about climbing, but... Uh, I would tell people
1: to, uh, you know, one of the things you learn about aid climbing when you go aid climbing is you think you're going fast and you're not. Um, so assume that every pitch you lead of aid is going to take you two or three times as long as a, as a free climbed pitch. It's
0: kind of like podcast editing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I get to the end of a pitch or two that I'd led and look at my watch and I couldn't believe how late it was. And. Um, you know, and and of course your blayer will tell you you're taking forever, but it's just so engaging. You think you're moving fast and you're not. So uh, that was, that was a big lesson we learned on Half Dome is that we just were not as fast as we thought we were.
0: What's some other things you've done? You've been either, I don't know, proud, excited about achievements, whatever you want to call them in climbing, maybe over the years, it doesn't have to be recent.
1: Uh, You know, I kind of climb stuff that I find fun to climb. I've never really been one to really push my grade. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I don't think I've ever red pointed anything harder than 5.11b. Um, And that was probably 30 years ago, you know? And I don't care. I'll go climb 5.7 all day. I love 5.7. It's my favorite grade. I admire that. And I I I haven't climbed all the greatest 5.7s in the world yet, you know? There's a lot Um, of them. And I still find 5.9 challenging, you know? Um, and there's plenty of five nines in the world. So I, I, you know, I'm never going to climb 13 B. Uh, Cause I don't care to work hard enough to do what it takes to climb that, you know? Um, but I love getting on a great Alpine Ridge and, uh, you know, and planning the trip and, and getting up early and getting going and, and, you know, covering, covering train and feeling competent and seeing beautiful places of the world. You know, and so that's, that's the sort of climbing I like to do. You know, I don't have any great goal to climb the seven summits or Mm -hmm. climb 514 or, or anything like that. There's a few routes that I've always looked at and said, that would be really cool to do. Um, But I'm starting to run out of those too.
0: (laughs) Do you have any that are nagging at you that maybe you're coming up?
1: You know, I'm trying not to think about doing the nose. Ooh, I probably okay. need a little bit more experience before I go do it. You know, a couple of aid routes probably would be a good idea to do before that. But, you know, I've been looking at that one too for, for many, many years. I'm trying not to make a firm commitment to do it um, because it may be beyond me by the time I get to it. Um, I'd like to do a trip to the bugaboos too that I haven't done. Um, and I'd like to do something in Antarctica. You know, it might, it might just be walking up Mount Benson, but, uh, or Benson Massif or whatever you call it, that might be all it is. But every time I see a picture of somebody climbing down there, I'm like, why have I not been there? Um, so those, those are some things still on my list. I got to go back to the Matterhorn too. We had to turn around on the Matterhorn when we went, just, we were expecting a rock climb and we ended up, you know, six inches of snow on all the rock we thought we were going to be climbing.
0: Notoriously testy weather there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We ended up, uh, you know, it was one of the few mountains I backed off on and you know, that mountain hasn't gone anywhere. It's still there.
0: Yeah, I admire that. I've, I've been wanting to do more and more of that style of climbing. I mean, I'm definitely more of the former kind of, yeah, projecter kind of guy who's always trying to do harder things because I like the gymnastic style of the movement. I like trying hard. You know, there's a lot of reasons behind it. There's probably some personality things there too. But it's interesting because I actually often see a lot of those projector style climbers come from these professional backgrounds. I see that overlap mm-hmm. a lot. Obviously not. There's not a one-to-one conclusion, but it's actually something I've noticed a lot. I don't know if you've noticed that in your own kind of climbing slash real-world career or not, but these personalities kind of dovetail into the kind of style of climbing people get into.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. A lot of it's probably just availability, too. People climb what they have. True, true. You know, and if you live, you know your rifle or whatever, you're probably doing a lot of sport climbing. That is true. (laughs) If you, uh, if you live in Yosemite or near Yosemite, maybe you're doing more big walls. Um, you know, I came into climbing, I grew up in Alaska. And so my introduction to climbing was mountaineering. You know, the first thing of any substance that I climbed was Denali when I was 17. Um, and so I've always been interested in going to the mountains and and doing big routes and, and those sorts of things. But I also recognize that that trudging up a snow-covered peak for three weeks isn't the funnest thing in the world either.
0: <laughs> That's cool. You did Denali at seventeen.
1: Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty interesting. We were actually the first successful Boy Scout group to to summit McKinley. So
0: now, how are crowds on the Northwest Face in Yosemite? I've always is that the route right? That the You're, route name. The yeah. route
1: is the regular Northwest Face. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's. Uh, And as, as that face goes, it's the most crowded route, but I can tell you what was there when we went and did it in peak season, you know, we went in August and we got to the base of it and there was a group, there was a a pair of guys that were, you know, they were just finished fixing the first pitch. And so we followed them, uh, and it was actually great to have them on route. You know, it was good not to be alone up there, but we ended up sharing big Sandy with them and big Sandy sleeps too comfortably. Um, not four. Uh, can four people get to sleep on it? Maybe, but not comfortably. Um, and they were very kind, you know, they're both from, uh, uh, I think they were from Oakland, I believe. Um, but by the time we got there at 4am, they were kind of done sleeping anyway. So <laughs> Doug very graciously allowed me to have a sleeping spot and I got 45 minutes of sleep, which was wonderful. But, uh, so that, I guess if that's crowded, it was crowded, but, uh, we had another group of guides climb through us. They were impressive climbers. Some of the most impressive things, uh, climbing I've seen done, you know, they had, they had started that morning and they climbed through us. We'd only done a pitch that day. We were on our second pitch of the day on our second day on half dome. They'd already done, you know, 17, 18 pitches. Um, so super impressive climbers climb through, basically simul climbing the whole thing, even on the aid sections. I was impressed with that. Um, so we saw them and then, uh, the next morning we spent another night at the base and the next morning there was another group going up the route, but if that's crowded, it's crowded, but <laughs> that didn't seem too crowded. I suppose it's possible to arrive there at the same time as two or three other teams and have to wait a day to start, but, um, you know, still not terrible. If you're willing to do harder stuff, those routes aren't crowded. It wasn't like doing some of the you know, six or eight pitch, uh, free routes in Yosemite that are five, eight, five, nine, and there's six parties on them. Hmm. You know, it was, it was not that crowded. You know, the harder you go, the the less crowded it gets.
0: No, interesting. Have you ever looked down at like Patagonia, any of that stuff? Is that too big, too audacious? I don't know. I'm not you really know, familiar.
1: We thought about going down there as a family, um, yeah. last Christmas and just couldn't come up with enough time to really do the trip justice. We ended up going to Columbia instead. Um, had a great time there. It was a great trip. Um, but just didn't have quite the time commitment that going to Patagonia would have had for us. Um, every time I read a trip report, it, it seems to involve sitting in a tent for a long time.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so that part doesn't sound so appealing, but you know, you look at you look a Cerro Torre and it looks pretty awesome, but I don't know that I'm going to get there in, in this lifetime.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I want to circle back to this thing we started with, which is this whole Venn diagram of life. And I've got one little squishy thing I want to ask. So You know, David Brooks wrote in a 2015 piece for the New York Times about resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And it really hit home for me at the time. And it's something I've kind of come back to because I spent a whole lot of my life working on resume virtues. And you probably did too as a doctor and a professional. But you sound like you're coming full circle with this and you're thinking more about how to keep life meaningful. And you've had financial freedom. You have all these things in place for you financially but how do you think you've kind of come full circle on these quote unquote eulogy virtues that people will look back on and say, Hey, you know, Jim Dolly is a great guy. You know, I think it's actually a beneficial
1: exercise, uh, to, you know, write. What's a stupid thing that you put in the newspaper when you die. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, the obituary, the obituary, write your own obituary Yeah. today. Yeah. When you're 25 or 35 or 45, what do you want it to say? And then live your life in a way that that can be said. I think there's a lot of, a lot of benefit to that. Um, you know, thinking about the end from the beginning. Um, and I, I think I'd like people to say in my eulogy, I'd like them to say lived a life of service and a life of adventure. Hmm. Um, and uh, that, you know, sure, I did a bunch of things that might be selfish. You know, and maybe somebody with four kids shouldn't be you know, doing a big route on Half Dome. <laughs> maybe that's selfish to do that. Um, by you the brought way, I one be,
0: of them with you. Well, no, not on the Half Dome trip. <laughs> oh, my partner okay, for that okay, was, okay.
1: was another emergency. Dog. I took my son up the Grand Teton. I didn't gotcha, take him up gotcha, Half Dome. but gotcha. um, You know, and you ask yourself, what right do I have with four kids to, to be taking those sorts of risks? And so maybe some of my life has been selfish while I sought out adventure or whatever. Um, but a great deal of my life has been spent serving others, whether they are volunteer pursuits in the community, at church, or whether they're helping my kids to have meaningful lives, whether they are, um, you know, the work I've done in medicine, the work I've done at the White Coat Investor, that's certainly a big portion of my life as well. So I'd like people to be able to say that about me. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and hopefully I find an appropriate balance between those two things during, during my life so far and, and moving forward. Um, but I, I do want people to remember me, you know, if they think about me as a businessman, that I was honest, you know, uh, yeah. smart, but honest that I always did what I said I was going to do. That's the funniest thing about business. If you'll just do that, you're usually pretty successful. Um, and, uh, and that I, you know, spread joy and happiness and help people to have, you know,
0: happier, more meaningful lives. That's very good. Thank you for sharing that. Anything else you'd like to add before we kind of go into this last final phase here? Um... Not that I can think of. Okay. I'm
1: curious. I'm curious what the final phase is, though. <laughs>
0: well, do you have three books you'd recommend?
1: Uh, only three. That's all I can yeah, recommend. I know.
0: Well, you can do more. Uh, you can do more. People you know, tell me to not limit people. So, uh,
1: from a moral, ethical, religious standpoint, probably the book that's changed my life the most is the Book of Mormon. Hmm, okay. With Perhaps the New Testament of a very close second. Um, you know, there's a reason people call them scripture. Um, they they're definitely worth spending some time in. Uh, when you're trying to figure out your life. Mm-hmm. Um, some other books, um, you know, Bill Bernstein is a neurologist turned financial guru. He wrote a book called the four pillars of investing. Yes. And he's got a second edition out this summer. I put in a plug for it. Uh, I've always liked Bill's writing. I love the way that he kind of approaches it from a bit of a scientific background. So for those of us in medicine or geology, that sort of a thing to, to kind of look at the evidence behind investing and the right way to invest, I think is very, um, you know, eye-opening for a lot of people and to understand the importance of the history of finance and investing. When you're looking at what's going on in today's world to realize we've been here before, you know, even when you're looking at something like cryptocurrency, you know, and it was feeling really bubblicious a year or two ago, you know, we've seen that sort of a thing many times before in the past. Mm -hmm. If you understand history, you can kind of understand where we're at with that sort of a thing. So I think that's a great book. Another one that everyone ought to spend at least a few minutes on, at least from a financial perspective is the class, the 1990s classic, a millionaire next door. Yes. And mostly just to get the message that you are not what you own or how you look, you know, that rich people don't have a bunch of stuff. Um, and, and I think the message that you know, everyone wants, thinks they want to be a millionaire, but what they really want to do is spend a (laughs) million dollars. Right. right. And those are polar opposites. You become a millionaire by not spending a million dollars that you could have spent. Yes. And I I find very few books are as good as the millionaire next door at passing along that message where they point out there's all these people with lots of money that don't have fancy watches and clothes and cars and vacations and, and those sorts of things. And that's why they're rich because they didn't spend their money on all that stuff. Um, they spent it on whatever matters to them the most. Yep. And so I think that's a really good one, but lately in life, I think a couple of other books that I can recommend for those who are kind of at my point where you're trying to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life. The financial game is kind of behind you at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is by Rick eigenbrod. It's called what happens when you get what you want. Hmm. Um, not very long, very easy to get through. I think it cost me five bucks or something on Amazon, not very expensive, um, but to actually you know, think about this question that nobody ever talks about, nobody ever writes about. And the other one on a similar note is Arthur Brooks's From Strength to Strength. It's subtitled Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life, which is kind of what I'm entering on now. And, um, and I think there's a lot of great philosophical points in there that somebody that's approaching or at financial independence would get a lot of benefit from that book.
0: I agree. I think Arthur Brooks has got some really great stuff. I read him on the Atlantic often, just a really great author on these kind of big picture, meaningful life kind of topics.
1: Yeah, I think he's great.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Jim Dahlia, obviously you can be reached at the White Coat Investor. Anything else you want to plug? Anything else you got going on over there while we have it? I mean, our,
1: our audience is high income professionals and I know there's lots of those in the climbing world. And, uh, you know, but the truth is 95% of finance is is the same for everybody. And Mm -hmm. so I think there's probably something at the white coat investor for just about everybody in your audience, but however you like your content, if you like podcasts, we've got that. If you like, you know, video, we've got a YouTube channel. If you like blog posts, we have that or email newsletters, books, courses, conferences, all that sort of stuff. Um, it's all there for you. It's the same information packaged up into whatever format you like.
0: Well, I thank you and your team tremendously. You guys are doing amazing things and you're doing honest things. Like you said, I appreciate what you're doing for the world. So, and again, I'm honored to have you here. So thanks again, Jim. Thanks again for having me. I want to remind you or let you know for the first time that I write a weekly newsletter that has really become popular in recent months. I put a lot of things in there that aren't deserving of their own post online, such as books I'm reading, Various articles as it relates to personal finance or life. Sometimes some music, sometimes not. A little bit of everything that keeps you on your toes. It is not just a notification of new posts. You don't need that. I want to add some flavor. And so you can get that there each week. Head on over. Put in your email over at clippingchains.com. It is free. You can unsubscribe at any time. All right, guys. I hope you have a fantastic week. See you next time.